Numbers chapter 4, where we left off last time. Numbers chapter 3 and 4 basically are chapters here in the book of Numbers that deal with the priests and the Levites. We saw last time in chapter 3 how God had spoke specifically to Moses telling him to bring the tribe of Levi near and that the tribe of Levi was to be given over uh, to Aaron and to his sons to basically help serve and support them. Uh, in the priesthood, obviously only the family line of Aaron himself would handle the functions of the priesthood, but yet there was a whole lot more to the tabernacle service that was necessary to be tended to, and uh, in light of that, uh, Aaron needed somewhat of a workforce to help support uh, in that ministry uh, that would take place as God operated the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, and as they transported the tabernacle, as they would move from location to location, so the tribe of Levi was designated for that and particularly the the three uh, uh, family uh, sons of the tribe of Levi we looked at Kohath uh, and Gershon and Merari and now as we come to chapter 4 after those were somewhat numbered in the third chapter chapter 4 now dealing with this topic still of the tribe of Levi gives to us kind of some more detailed description of some of what their specific duties were as God had assigned to each of them their tasks and I think it's somewhat of a reminder to us as we'll hopefully be able to take by way of application how each one of us the Bible says in the New Testament that we are all sufficient ministers of the new covenant that as the Holy Spirit has given gifted each one of us as we are a part of the body of Christ and the spirit of Christ dwells in each one of us there is a sufficiency Paul says not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think as anything as being of ourselves but our sufficiency comes from God and God has given to each one of us a, a sufficiency God has given to each one of us ministries and enablements by his Holy Spirit so that he can use us in different roles and assigned tasks that we might fit into the place in the body of Christ and serve the Lord in the ways in which he has called us to and so in some ways we uh, can remember that even as we look at God here sort of assigning some of the tasks to the Levites notice he begins in chapter 4 verse 1 by saying then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi by their families and by their father's house now in the prior chapter All of the Levites were numbered, remember, from one month old and above. What God is going to do now is is ask for a separate census, particularly of those who were at the legitimate age to engage in active service and active ministry. Uh, And here particularly we read in verse 3 that those who were at the appropriate age to engage in actual ministry service, verse 3, were those from 30 years old and above even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So we'll see. It was at age 30 that they actually engaged in their official ministry duties and responsibilities, and they would serve for a 20-year stint, it seems here, until the time that they were 50, and at that time, there would be a cessation of their role of active duty and responsibility. We're going to see when we get to chapter 8, that there, there's a reference to them beginning their ministry uh, around the age of 25, and I don't think we find a contradiction as much as perhaps what's being indicated is probably most likely, 
which would make complete sense, that around the age of 25, they would enter into their ministry. And those first five years were sort of a preparatory time for them to be mentored and to be equipped to be adequately trained and prepared. Again, if, if you uh, just think about with me for a moment, the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus and all the detailed aspects of the sacrificial system and the responsibilities and how offerings were to be made and the different types of offerings, burnt offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and the different duties of the uh, that was involved in all these things. And as we look at all the different things that were to be carried and maintained, it makes sense that there would be a process whereby such young men will be brought to a place of maturity, that they would be adequately prepared and ready to step into their role being trained sufficiently to then begin to serve in that capacity. So here we see God setting this age of around 30 years old when they would enter into their ministry and that would last to the time of about 50 years. And again, in some ways, God probably just using wisdom. Those just do seem to kind of be the, the, the prime years of life in some ways where uh, th there's still the strength physically to serve with, uh, with vigor and the vitality of one's energy. And at the same time, that's also a season and a state of life where a person begins to develop some ways in, into some adult maturity. I, I think, you know, as you, as you come to that season of life between 30 and 50, certainly at 30 years old, you, you've kind of had a little bit of the wind knocked out of your sails and you've had some life life experience and there's something healthy about that so God here uh, orchestrating that 30 was to age they would begin their ministry now uh, again interesting because we see Jesus uh, enter into his public ministry at 30 years old David took the throne uh, at 30 years old now uh, keep in mind from a New Testament perspective uh, we don't see any restrictions put upon age there's no criteria set forth uh, in the New Testament under the gospel of grace whereby God establishes any age requirement when we start when we stop uh, so certainly we don't want to carry those things over in fact Paul even tells Timothy look don't, don't let anybody despise your youth uh, you know if, if there's a level of spiritual maturity the Bible does tell us that there is to be maturity spiritually uh, not a novice Paul tells uh, Timothy so there is to be spiritual maturity as we take on active ministry roles but in the New Testament you know, wh whether we're, we're 22 and mature in the Lord and, and God wants to bless and give and work through a, a young man's life in ministry or or whether you're 62 and at that point you embrace the call of God uh, there's no restrictions put upon us but keep in mind what these particular people in the tribe of Levi were doing it was a lot of physical labor again we're going to see what are they doing they're carrying around the tabernacle they're transporting the tabernacle of the service of the work of the tabernacle so this was not easy work I mean they were carrying heavy burdens and and so again God here almost in his mercy says you know at 30 begin but when you begin to get around 50 and the body's starting to have a little wear and tear and things aren't functioning as well and you get tired and worn out a little easier God mercifully says look at 50 that's it no more carrying stuff at 50 you let the young men take over it's time now that you can take a break from those things and probably the older men from the tribe of Levi began I believe probably to then begin to function in more of an advisory role uh, where they were able from their experiences maybe they were the ones who were training the younger men uh, as they were about to engage in their service so here God sets this 20 year span 
when they would enter in and do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, verse 4 begins first to tell us what was the role of the people of Kohath, the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting related to the most holy things. Now, we're going to see what they were responsible for was the furnishings inside the tabernacle itself. Verse 5 says, when the camp prepares to journey... So when that uh, pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, remember, uh, wherever that was, they were to move in response to that. So when they saw the presence of God begin to move and they realized, okay, it's time to move on, to transition to the next location, when the camp is prepared to journey forward, at that point, verse 5, first of all, Aaron and his sons, the priesthood exclusively, they were to come and they shall take down the covering of the veil and cover the ark of the testimony. So they were to go inside the tabernacle. Remember, the, the veil was there to separate the holy place from the most holy place, the rear room, the holy of holies, where the presence of God was manifest there over the ark of the covenant. And only the priests themselves, Aaron and his sons, were to go in and to take down that veil. No one else was to intrude into there. They were to take down that veil and they were to cover the ark. And then they shall put on it, verse 6, a covering of badger skins over top of that. And the idea there was to... Uh, protected the badger skins were, were allowed to be waterproof somewhat and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue and they were to insert remember the poles had four loops on each corner one on each corner so that it could be manually carried uh, by individuals on poles verse 7 they were then to do the same thing notice with the table of showbread they were to spread a blue cloth over it and then put the dishes and pans and bowls and pitchers uh, and the showbread to be on it uh, verse 9 notice they then were also to put a blue cloth over the lamp stand of the light with its lamps and its wick trimmers and trays verse 11 they also were then to do the same thing with the golden altar they were to spread a blue cloth over it and cover it with a covering of badger skins and insert the poles. So again, you can see what they're doing here is as they're breaking down the tabernacle, Aaron and his sons are covering the different furnishings inside, beginning by taking down the veil first, covering the ark of the testimony that was there, and then beginning to put coverings as well on the table of showbread, on the lampstand, that golden menorah that was in there. They're covering these different furnishings and putting the poles into the loops so that they can then be carried by the men of Kohath who would come in and actually bear these things and carry them around. Uh, look at verse 15. It says, And when Aaron and his sons, notice, have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, and when the camp is set to go, then, that's when the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die and these are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry so again once everything's finished and covered at that point then the men of Kohath are summoned their responsibility is to carry all of the interior furniture the furnishings inside the tabernacle and to bear those things on poles to manually carry them they were not to be put on carts they were to be carried manually as they bore the burden themselves 
with the poles that were put through those different things. Now, again, take notice verse 15. They were to carry them and they were not to touch them because they were holy things lest they die, God warns. Now, that's important to remember because later when we get to the time of David, if you remember, David wants to move the ark back to Jerusalem at one point and what does David do? David, being excited about this, he gets to, together a big entourage of people and it says that he builds a, a nice cart and you know beautiful wheels and, and he puts the ark on it and he's transitioning the ark on this cart with wheels and there's this big entourage and prayed and as it's moving forward, it says the oxen stumble and the cart begins to shake and Uzzah reaches out his hand to stabilize, remember, the, the ark and what happens? Boom. He struck dead on the spot. And, and, and to the chagrin of everyone there, God strikes this individual dead because he looks like he's trying to do a good thing. What's he doing? Oh, God's falling. Let me catch him. You know, let me help. And he reaches out his hand to try and stop the ark from falling, thinking he's doing a good thing and in seeking to do a good thing, but doing it outside of God's prescribed way. The severity of God's judgment falls upon him and he, and he dies on the spot. And, and David's quite sobered and, and, and humbled. And, and what does he do? But it drives David then to go back and to seek the word of God and say, God, I know this is what you want us to do. But somehow we're going about it the wrong way. And so it drives him back to the word of God to realize, oh, we're, we're, we're doing the right thing, but we're not going about it scripturally. We're not going about it the right way. And, and David goes back and no doubt seeks the word of God and seeks God's direction and returns to the way the scripture advises to do it, which we see here laid out by God originally and no doubt probably read some of these passages. And as he's reading the word of God, reconciled, okay, God, now I understand you are right. And emotionally, David probably at first was maybe even, it even infers that he was angry. He was somewhat upset. He was scared and angry. And, and he realizes he went back to the word of God. Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And sometimes God's word has a way of uh, allowing that to happen in our lives. So here God gives very clear instructions. Verse 16 tells us, And the appointed duty of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, is the oil for the light, so this is what he was responsible for, the oil that went into the menorah, the sweet incense for the altar of incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacle and that's in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. So the responsibility of Eliezer given by God, Aaron's son, is he was to provide oversight to the people of Kohath who would move and carry the furnishings and the furniture inside the tabernacle as they would transition. His job was to provide leadership and oversight by God's design of those holy things. Verse 17, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and to his task, but they shall not go in. Look at verse 20. Not only not touch it, they shall not go in and watch while the holy things are being covered lest they die. So not only was they risking death if they touched those things, but again, the presence of God, so awesome, so holy, so to be revered, God says they couldn't even go in and watch 
as they were covering those things. They were to stay outside because of reverence for the presence of God. Now, look at verse 20 and then consider how, and I'm going to use a big word here, but it's one that stuck with me from an old pastor friend I used to spend time with before he died. How efficacious is the blood of Jesus Christ that the Bible now tells us that through what Jesus has done, the effectiveness of his redemptive work, that we, Hebrews 4 says, can go boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time, that we can go directly into the presence of God whenever we want because of what Jesus has done for us. How amazing the transition to realize these were shadows of the things to come. And they couldn't look upon those things. They couldn't touch them because the presence of God was so awesome. And yet the death, the sacrifice, the shed blood of Jesus is so effective. It's so efficient in what it's accomplished that now we have complete access and we can go directly into the presence of God and speak to him and look into his face and talk to him and have direct access into God's presence through Jesus Christ. Man, what a marvelous thing Jesus has accomplished for us. You realize the extent of what Jesus has provided when you realize that this is what it was like prior to what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, how dreadfully sinful we are, and yet how wonderful the access Jesus has provided for us. Verse 21, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Also take a census from the sons of Gershon, by their father's house and by their families. Again, the same age, verse 23, they began from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, and number those who enter to perform the service to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And again, here we'll try and summarize for you the, the, the responsibility of the sons of Gershon. Theirs was, verse 25, to carry all of the curtains. Remember the multiple curtains, the layers over the tabernacle, as well as the linen curtain that went around the fence all the way around. Again, these were, were large, heavy curtains. They were responsible to carry these things and the screen for the door and the cords that connected all these things. That was what they were to carry. Verse 27 says, Aaron and his son shall assign all the service of the sons of Gershon, all their tasks and all their service, and you shall appoint to them, notice, their tasks and their duties. So they had appointed roles. Each one, each individual received their task, their responsibility. And the service of the families of the Gershonites in the tabernacle of meeting and their duties were to be under, verse 28, the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So the other son of Aaron that was still alive was Ithamar and he was to have oversight. Uh, his job was to provide leadership and oversight to the Gershonites and their responsibilities of carrying the curtains and the cords and those type of things. And then thirdly, verse 29, for the sons of Merari, again, they were to be numbered, same age from 30 to 50 was when they would do their work. Verse 31 says, and what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting, what they carried was, notice, the infrastructure, the boards, uh, the bars, the pillars, the sockets. Verse 32, the pillars around the court with their sockets the pegs and the cords with all their furnishings and all their service and you shall, look at verse 32, assign to each man, look how specific God is, by name the items that he must carry. 
So this third uh, people group, the people of Merari, they carried all of the physical infrastructure, the, the, the boards that were overlaid with gold, and then all the connecting pieces, the, the pillars, the bars, the sockets, even the pegs. And God says so specific and, and so valuable was every aspect of his work and of his ministry and of the, the worship life among the people, God says, verse 32, that you shall assign to each man by his name the items that he must carry. Imagine, you know, you know here you are, and, and Fred, this is your peg. And whenever we leave, Fred, this, peg 196, is yours. So when we leave, make sure you have peg one. And I wonder if Fred's going, really? I mean, a peg? You want me to carry a peg around? And, 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 but his job was to keep that peg and to keep track of that peg and to take care of that peg and to make sure that peg didn't rust. And guess what? When they got to the next spot, as they were putting the thing together and they said, all right, we need peg 196. Where's Fred? It says right here, Fred's responsible for peg one. Oh, well, I mean, I just, I mean, it was just a peg. I, I think I dropped the thing somewhere. I mean, I think I lost it. I mean, it just kind of got bulky in my robe, so I just chucked it. I figured, pegs, we can pick up a new peg in Home Depot, can't we? I mean, it's just a peg. What's a big deal? No, no, you don't understand. That peg's important. Because that peg holds everything else together in that whole area. And if that peg's missing, then everybody else's stuff doesn't hold together either. Because that peg is critical. You're going to have to go and find that peg. That peg is valuable. But again, what an incredible reminder here how, again, look how each person had their assigned role to fulfill. Each person was responsible to carry part of the load. All the tribe of Levi, whether it was a cord, a peg, a curtain, everybody had their assignment and their role to fulfill and they had to be faithful in what God assigned them to do. And everybody, not most people, not some people, everybody had by name some part of the load that they were supposed to carry that contributed to the whole of what God was doing among his people and the work and the worship system. And, you know, I look at this and I think, what a great reminder, because in the same way in the church, nothing really has changed among the congregation of God's people. In the same way, we are one body made up of many members and every person in the church body, listen, has a role. Every one of us as a brother and a sister in Christ in the family of God, we have a part to play and your part is significant. Even if it's just taking care of the peg. Even if it's just doing that one small thing, we need each other. And if we don't contribute our part and faithfully do our part, it causes suffer and struggle for other areas and other parts of the ministry. You know, every aspect, we all have a contribution that's necessary and we need to faithfully fulfill our role and our part to find out what that is, to take our assignment from the Lord by name. Okay, Lord, I'm supposed to take care of this peg and this board. I'm supposed to carry this part of the load. That's my part to carry. And, and I need to carry my part and to carry my load. In the same way, I expect that person to carry their part and their load. And that's what makes everything function together in harmony and in efficiency. 
And again, we see this taught repeatedly throughout the scriptures. Sunday morning, we're going to study a passage that deals with this very thing. In Romans chapter 12 there, in verses 3 through 8, Paul talks about how each one has received a measure of faith and each one has received grace to serve in some capacity. And he says, therefore, whatever gift you've received, use it, exercise it. Paul, uh, Peter's going to say in 1 Peter chapter 4, is each one has received a you know, a measure of God's grace, you know, be good stewards of the manifold grace of God and, and utilize those things for the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul addresses this same concept as he talks about the body of Christ. But let me read you particularly, just for sake of time, let me just read you what Paul says here from Ephesians 4 because it drives home this same point that I'm trying to emphasize here with us. Paul, as he's talking about how we're a part of the body functioning together, he says, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom, listen to what he says, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Do you hear what, what God is saying? God is saying, just like in a human body, as every part has an individual role, but it all functions interdependent upon one another, he says in the same way in the body of Christ, the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Everybody has something to supply. And everybody has something to receive from the other parts of the body as we each carry our load and contribute that significant thing God has told us to do. And he says, when that happens, when every part does its share, that causes growth of the body. Which makes me have to step back as a Christian if the Bible is true and say, sometimes is growth hindered in the body of Christ because of people who become pupitatus. And people who say, I don't have a role. I, I have nothing to contribute or I don't need to contribute. Then people take care of that. Somebody else takes care of that. Well, maybe somebody else is carrying three pegs because you're not carrying the one peg that you're supposed to be carrying. And see, God says, no, each one has a part, has a contribution. We're all to share in the load as it's spread among us and everyone's significant. Everyone has something to contribute. And as we realize what we're assigned and we faithfully do that, God says that contributes to growth. That contributes to a healthy body that then grows because guess what? Just like a body, you know, w w when one part of the body is hurting and suffering, what happens in a human body? I know this because I'm a back sufferer. You then start to compensate right? So, so your back gets hurt over here on the left and then all of a sudden you're like, well, why is my right shoulder and my right hip hurting and what's going on? Because what does the body do? When, when one part's injured or suffering, it starts to compensate in ways that it shouldn't have to because of weakness in other areas. And I think the same thing happens in the church. I think the same thing happens in the body of Christ. Sometimes if one person's not being faithful, if a few people aren't being faithful and embracing their role and carrying their load, it can cause hindrance to the body of Christ. So, hey, this evening, listen, what's your role? What's your assignment? Find out what it is. And if you know what it is, listen, just because you're carrying a peg doesn't make you less than the person who's carrying the board or the person who's carrying the table of showbread. Those things are critical. They're all important elements and they all function together so that in the journey, 
as we journey together in the Lord, we make forward progress and the life of worship continues to function as God intends it to. Now, as you go through the remainder of this chapter, and I won't belabor it for you, verse 34 down through the remainder of the chapter, God then instructs Moses and Aaron uh, to basically take the numbers, the actual census of those from each of the families who have men 30 years old up through 50. Verse 36 says there was 2,750 from the Kohathites, uh, verse 38 then mentions Gershon and it tells us there in verse 40 that there was a total of 2,630 men that were from 30 to 50. And then over in verse 44, the people of Merari of those 30 to 50 were 3,200 and all of them being numbered together, verse 47, from 30 years old and above. Everyone who came to do the work of the service, the work of bearing burdens in the tabernacle of meeting, total at that point were 8,580 according to the commandment of the Lord. They were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service and his task, and they were numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Now chapter 5 begins to deal with purity and relational things within the camp, that the camp would be healthy relationally and in regards to their purity before God as he was in their midst. He says, chapter 5, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. Now we saw in our earlier studies together as we've been going through Exodus and Leviticus, these were things that made a person ceremonially unclean. If you had leprosy, if you had some type of a discharge, whether it was a natural discharge or an unnatural discharge that rendered you ceremonially unclean for a, a, a time period, or if you came in contact with a dead body, a corpse, whether it was the corpse of a dead animal, whether it was the corpse of a person who had died, again, because that person could have had some type of a disease or the animal could have been diseased or you came in contact with the dead just in general, even if you were preparing for the death of one of your loved ones, that would make you ceremonially unclean for a time period. So these were different things that caused, in a sense, a defilement ceremonially. And God said, those who are in this condition, verse 3, they were to put both male and female, put them outside of the camp. Notice that they may not defile their camp so it wouldn't contaminate the other congregants in the midst, God says, of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. So here God's instructing them to protect from the spread of defilement, which makes absolute wise sense here uh, those with dangerous or unclean conditions whether it was temporary ceremonial uncleanness whether it was a hygienic condition that could defile others in some way those who could spread their defilement in dangerous unclean conditions were not to interact God said for a time period or a prolonged period with the general assembly so that there was not contamination of other people so that contamination didn't spread. And I think here God is just, again, bringing them back into remembrance, even of things he said before, because in the first four chapters, God's dealt a lot with organization and structure. 
He's told them where to camp. He's told them to get organized. He's given some structure to the Levites and to the priesthood and their different duties. But God says, look, you can implement all the structure you want and get real organized. But if there's not holiness, nothing else matters. Because you can be super organized and run like an efficient machine. But if there is not purity and holiness in the camp, you will contaminate and die from the inside out. And it don't matter how well organized you are. And so God here again brings them back to this remembrance that sometimes separation would be necessary to avoid infecting and polluting others and and that they were to be respectful primarily because God says that you don't defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. So God says the reason I'm asking for this foremost is because my presence is in your midst as my people. And if nothing else, out of reverence for me, God says, I ask you at times to do these things. And certainly as we look at this, it's a reminder to us spiritually that sometimes you know, separation is necessary. Even from a spiritual perspective, we have to be careful at times that you know, the Bible says a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. And sometimes unhealthy people spiritually, whether it's doctrinally or you know, sinful you know, life-dominating habits, can begin to have an effect where they can contaminate other people. And sometimes to honor God's presence and to protect ourselves, the New Testament speaks of time when separation is necessary that it's a safeguard to honor the Lord and to protect that from spreading to other people. Verse 5, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. And when a man or a woman commits any sin, that a man commits an unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed and make restitution for his trespass plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one notice that he has wronged so here God is addressing giving a command that we resolve he's telling the Israelites anyway that they resolve relational mistreatment relational offenses things that would happen at times that they would cause offense toward one another or mistreat or sin against one another now God is addressing that saying listen those things aren't to be left unaddressed they must be resolved in the same way the camp be can't be polluted by this or leprosy God says there can't be interpersonal unresolved issues within the congregation of my people because God says that will contaminate and ruin things as well. So God here says, look, if you have been guilty in some way, here he's addressing the guilty party. He says, when someone commits a sin and notice that sin, verse seven indicates that you have wronged someone else. God says, when you commit a sin in unfaithfulness against the Lord and, and the person is guilty, they are to go and to confess and make restitution to the one that they have wronged. So uh, God here is bringing up this issue of at times, if they were to do something to rob their neighbor or to hurt their neighbor, if they did something that was a clear sin and offense against their neighbor, interesting that God sees wronging another person as an aspect of unfaithfulness against him. Why? Because God loves people. And God cares about people. So God says, when you sin against someone else, when you've wronged someone else in whatever capacity, God says, it's not just that you've wronged them. God says, that is also an element of unfaithfulness against me because I care about people and God cares about relationships. So God gives clear 
command here that we are to resolve our error. If we have hurt someone, wronged someone, offended or mistreated and sinned against someone, he says, verse 7, that you shall confess the sin which was committed, which means to acknowledge it, to admit it, don't make excuses or justifications and think, oh, well, no, God says take ownership of it, make acknowledgement of it, but notice more than that, and he shall make restitution for his trespass plus one-fifth. So, in whatever way that sin caused harm, whether it caused a person to you know, lose a portion of their crop because you stole something from them, again, or you were a hired servant, you didn't come through on your contract, God says, not only do you just say sorry, God says, no, you demonstrate that you're sorry. God says, because that goes a lot further towards reconciliation and restoration. So God here asks for restitution. God says, here's what God's saying, you need to go make it right. Don't just say, oh, I was, okay, I was wrong, all right? I was wrong, I admit it. Okay, I was wrong. God says, no, if you genuinely believe that you were wrong, then make an effort to demonstrate by some form of restitution to facilitate healthy restoration and reconciliation. So God says, go make restitution because see, restitution, and notice, it wasn't just restitution, it was restitution plus another 20%. So what God is reminding them here is restitution is always, here's the thing, practical proof of repentance. See, because if somebody is genuinely repentant, they will not set any limit of what it takes to make things right. They will go out of their way to say, look, whatever it takes to make things right, I'm willing to pay the cost. I'm willing to do whatever I can to not just say I'm sorry, but to demonstrate I'm sorry and to do what I need to to bring about restoration and reconciliation. And again, here, God puts this onus upon them if they were guilty and knew they were guilty of having sinned against someone, not to just brush it aside and not deal with it. God says, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. God says, you must go if you have caused the hurt and offense and make that right towards the one that you have wronged. Again, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus says, look, even in your worship life, if you come before the Lord and worship and, and the Spirit of God prompts you to remember, you know what? I'm guilty of doing something to someone and I've never really said it completely right yet. Jesus says it would be a greater act of worship to not offer me some gift, sing to me, give me money, keep serving me, reading your Bible. Jesus would be a better act of worship for you to hit the pause button in your life and to go and do whatever you have to do to the person that you know that you have wronged in some way and to make it right with them and to do what you have to do to make it right. And you see, when we do that, not only does it free our conscience before God, but I tell you, that goes a long way when you don't just say sorry, but you're willing to make restitution and make it right to demonstrate it. That goes a long way towards the restoration and reconciliation of relationships. In fact, notice verse eight, he says, but if the man has no relative, the idea here is, let's say the individual has died. 
you know, let's say they've died, you never had a chance to make something right. You've, you've hurt someone and you never had a chance to go back and make it right. And then you go and say, well, maybe they have a relative. I can, you know, pay their spouse or make it right with their child or you want to go. And, but they don't even have a relative whom restitution can be made for the wrong. The restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. In addition to the ram of atonement with which the atonement is made for him, every offering of the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy things shall be his, whatever many gives to the priest shall be his. So God here, gracious as he is, says, let's say you want to go make something right. Maybe it's been years and that person's not even alive anymore. So in your conscience, you're dealing with the guilt and the conviction of, you know what, I did something wrong at some point. I hurt this person. I treated them wrong. I took advantage of them. And, and I never had a chance to say sorry or to go make things right with them. So you go on a pursuit to do that and they're not around or alive and you can't even find a relative to try and make things right with. God says, for conscience sake alone. God says, then you can still come. He says here to the house of God, he was telling them, and, and they could make restitution at the tabernacle in such a way that at least between them and God, in their conscience, some way God, again, God doesn't want that weight to bear down on a person. I think that's beautiful because sometimes there's not the opportunity to make restitution with a person practically, but God doesn't want us to carry around the weight of guilt and live with that guilt and condemnation. So God says, look, I'll make a provision here. He gave the Israelites a way they could bring that same restitution and they could donate it to the tabernacle in a way so that at least the guilt could be released from them and God could allow them to show the genuineness of their repentance and their sorrow before the Lord. Now, the remainder of chapter 5 is probably a very bizarre section of Scripture, and probably less I say in relation to it, the better, um, because I, I may just cause more problems than what it's worth. But it deals with now uh, a husband that becomes suspicious, uh, potentially towards his wife's unfaithfulness. Let's look at it together. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him. In other words, she's legitimately guilty of infidelity, marital unfaithfulness. She's become unfaithful to her husband and a man lies with her carnally. She has sexual intercourse with another man that's not her husband. But notice it's hidden from the eyes of her husband. So the husband's not aware. She's never you know, confessed and it's never come out. She's gotten away with it. And it's concealed that she has defiled herself and there was no witness against her. So no one's aware. Nobody can hold her accountable for it, nor was she caught. So she's in essence gotten away with the adultery that she's committed. Verse 14, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, that is her husband, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself or if a spirit of jealousy comes upon her husband and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. So God here brings up this uh, provision now in relation to marital infidelity and unfaithfulness, which I think is the first reminder to us we have to remember is a very serious issue to God because God now makes this provision. He calls it a law of jealousy here to remind us that adultery is a very serious violation against God, who's a covenant-keeping God and honors marriage, and against our marriage partner. Adultery causes tremendous pain and devastation. 
And it brings tremendous hurt when it happens. Again, remember Leviticus 20 verse 10 said that the punishment for adultery under the law was death. For the adulterer and the adulteress, both parties were to be put to death. So God here now makes a provision, I think this law, to protect from unjust suspicion that could come upon a husband where it could then, unjust suspicion or accusation, lead to easy divorces or to putting people to death that don't really deserve to be put to death because sometimes people have an inclination towards suspicion and jealousy. So God says if she is guilty and a spirit of jealousy comes upon her husband, the idea there, verse 14, is, you know, and again, if you're, you're married, you kind of have that sneaky, he has like a sneaky suspicion. Something's not right here. And I think this happens, you know, when you're that bonded and that close, and you just, I just, something, and sometimes a person can sense in a marriage relationship, just something's not right. And, and God says if that spirit of jealousy comes upon him, or if he has a spirit of jealousy or suspicion, but maybe she's completely innocent, God here makes a provision of how to work through this. Verse 15, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley, and he shall pour no oil on it or frankincense because it's a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. The idea here is it's an offering in such a way to, to bring to remembrance iniquity. The idea is it's asking God to reveal if indeed iniquity has happened, to reveal it if indeed it truly has happened. Verse 16, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. So I want you to notice something. If the husband's suspicious, there's a sense of jealousy that maybe she has committed adultery or even he, he, he thinks that, but maybe she's innocent. I want you to notice what, what happens this process to bring this offering and bring her before the Lord and what, what's taking place here? It's asking God to reveal if the suspicion is validated. There's a really great principle there. If you're suspicious about something in regards to someone else, whether it's in marriage or any other situation and you think somebody's guilty of something or somebody's doing something and you have a suspicion about them, you're not entitled to just validate that your suspicion is accurate. You should bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, if my suspicion is accurate, then reveal it and validate it. You reveal that because only God knows everything. A lot of times we, you know, have a suspicious attitude and, and we want to spiritualize it as discernment and sometimes all that is is just suspicion and criticism and it's called speculation that's foolish and wrong and we've all been on the guilty end of that sometimes it may be validated but there are other times and God's saying here it could go either way so God says you bring her before the Lord with this offering of remembrance and say Lord if it is true then you reveal it you give evidence and validate. And I think there's a great reminder and principle for all of us that when we have suspicion about anything, bring it before the Lord. Bring that person before the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, if it's true, you validate it. You make it evident and obvious. Verse 16, the priest would set her before the Lord and then take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water 
And then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover her head, which was a, a sign of mourning, the idea is, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath, saying to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you've not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free of this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and some other man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse and shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot, that sounds fun, and your belly swell, and this water that causes the curse may go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Doesn't it sound fun to be a woman in the days of Israel? So this provision is made where the priest takes water in an earthen vessel. And then it says he scrapes some of the dirt off the tabernacle floor, makes some muddy water, this solution, and he brings it to her and he puts her under oath and says, look, if you're guilty and you have been with another man, then when you drink this, may God validate that whereby it becomes a curse and it has some type of an effect upon her physically whereby somewhat of a judgment of God would come upon her as a validation of that. Again, the, the thigh rotting uh, or, and, the, and the belly swelling seems to be an indication of an effect in the, in the reproductive area whereby she would probably be rendered sterile and, and it was a way of God demonstrating her guilt. Uh, so she was to drink this and as a result of how it had an effect upon her, that was the way God would prove out or validate her guilt or her innocence. And she said, okay, uh, so be it. Uh, let it take place. Verse 23, the priest shall write these curses in a book and scrape them off into the bitter water. So add a little ink to that dirty water. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand and wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar and take a handful of the offering as a memorial portion to burn it on the altar and afterward make the woman drink the water. And when he's made her drink the water, it shall be if she's defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter and her belly will swell and her thigh will rot and the woman will become a curse among her people. But, verse 28, if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, again, God would protect her. There would be no uh, you know, resulting effect. She shall then be free and notice and may conceive children. And verse 29 says, this is the law of jealousy when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her and the man shall be free from iniquity. And the reason why there is because he fulfilled what God asked him to do in this situation. He, he addressed it and handled it again. This was something God implemented. Do I fully understand it? No. Uh, can I look and say, well, I agree with that. Sounds like a great idea. I, this is something God instituted. So God says the man will be free. Why? Because he didn't take the matter into his own hands. He, he, he let it be addressed the way that God here set forth this provision. But the woman, and the idea is if she's been adulterous, shall bear her guilt. Now, uh, let me just say a, a few things in relation to this chapter, just as sort of some 
maybe summary observations. I think a couple things are, are addressed here. First of all, notice that God provides a means here to address and to resolve suspicion in a marriage relationship. And, and I think this is very wise of God because relationships are built and established upon trust. And suspicion will kill any relationship. Suspicion will kill a marriage relationship. Suspicion will kill any relationship. So God says, if that husband has a suspicious attitude, whether he's just got a jealousy issue or whether it's a, a genuine jealousy that he senses from God, both could happen. God said, either way, that suspiciousness needs to be resolved, addressed, and done away with. Because God says suspicion is destructive to relationships. So there's a process here whereby that suspicion could be eradicated in the relationship. And through this whole process, what does the woman have an opportunity to do? If she is guilty, she also has an opportunity through this whole process as she's watching the dust go in the water to say, okay, I did it. I confess. So God was giving that opportunity here through this process. I think a second observation we can make is this. Is covered or hidden sin is always going to get revealed by God. So if indeed the wife was guilty, notice, ultimately God knew what happened, as it said in the beginning of the chapter. If she had defiled herself and there were no witnesses and she hadn't got caught by a person. But God knew what she had done and God makes it very evident here again in his word that covered and hidden sin will always be exposed by God eventually. God will always bring it out because God's aware of what happened and God in time will always bring things to the surface. Jesus said, there's nothing hidden which will not be revealed nor has anything been kept secret but that it should come to light. Listen, there is no sin, whether it be adultery or any other sin that's hidden or secretive that's been committed that God will not and is not able to expose and bring to the surface in time. And the wisdom from God is this. Our role, like the husband in this picture, is to bring people before God and let God be in charge of those things. Our job is not to start playing the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Our job is not to become private investigators and searching out and sniffing sin in people's lives and trying to bring people's sin to the surface and you know validating our suspicious accusations. Listen, let God be in charge of revealing people's guilt and dealing with people's guilt. He is God. We're not, right? Our job is to love people. Our job is to trust that God is able to sufficiently be a judge and that he's pretty good at that. And he's pretty fair and equitable in the way he goes about it. Our job is to say, Lord, how can we continue to lovingly, honorably, you know, interact in our relationships in a way that's pleasing to you? You notice in chapter five here is a very clear emphasis in this whole chapter that there's a big connection between our personal relationships and our relationship with God. All of chapter 5 is about maintaining healthy relationships with other people because God's reminding us that our relationships with other people have a huge, huge bearing upon our relationship with the Lord. Remember, what does God even tell husbands in, in Peter? Peter says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. And he says, lest your prayers be hindered. 
What? God says, yeah. Our relationships with other people, please don't dismiss. Healthy relationships with one another in the church, in our marriages, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, with people, these things have a huge bearing upon the vertical relation and the health of our relationship with the Lord. Those are things we want to address and resolve biblically and quickly and in a way that we do it to please and honor according to God's design because that contributes to a healthy relationship with the Lord. Amen? Let's stand.